Radio Mano Papachango. What's up, Chris Babe? I'm friends with Kyle. We're hanging around, doing some good shit, man. Me and my girlfriend, Christiane, trying to spread love and truth through novelty with our uh, podcast, Doe and L Productions. Sappy Writing Inc., you know, with Trail Park Mark. I uh, love you, Chris. I want to read your book, dude. Can't wait till that shit comes out, brother. I'm friends with Kyle. He's a cool fucking surfer, man. Fuck my shit. Listen to Kyle, dude, or fucking Rogan, man. All those guys are fucking wait. Or Duncan, man. Fuck Duncan. I love him, bro. Have a good one, Chris. Take care. Hey, good morning, Chris. Brandon here. I'm a cardiac perfusion student headed uh, west cross country from Charleston to San Diego, going out to my first uh, clinical rotation. And uh, along the way, I decided to do some hiking. So uh, it's about sunrise right now. I'm uh, at the top of a peak in Texas overlooking a, a valley, and it just, it just started to light up, and birds started waking up, and Found a perfect opportunity to take a naked photo for this uh, passion project me and my friends got going on. Little, little coffee table book of all our adventures. But uh, anywho, legs are uh, dangling over a cliff right now, and if you listen closely, woo! <laughs> hear a little bit of an echo. But uh, hey, I wanted to thank you and all your guests for uh, keeping me company along the way. It uh, it sure helped the time pass, and uh, thank you for showing us the broader spectrum of uh, humanity and broadening our minds, brother. So uh, much love, and take care on your journeys. Hey everybody, it's Glenda from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Newly resubscribed Patreon subscriber because I think Chris's podcast is so awesome. I wish I was traveling the world right now, but I am walking around a quiet little neighborhood on my lunch break from my brand new job, which is why I can support Patreon again and Chris and all the great work he does. Have a great one, everybody, and keep up the good work, Chris. Thanks, y'all. Hey, you are traveling the world, even if you're home. That's part of the world. And Vancouver is part of the world people go to when they're traveling the world. So look at it that way. You're in a place people go to on vacation. I always thought that's a pretty good way of looking at things. If you live in a place people go to on vacation, that's cool. Because you just go for a walk and it's like, hey, you saved the airfare. Always looking for a bargain. Always looking for those that hidden value. I have this thing where I calculate... You know, I figure, what's it worth to me not to shave every morning? And I figure, I don't know, $30,000 a year. Someone would have to pay me $30,000 a year to get up and shave every day. And then what's it worth to not wake up at 6.30 in the morning every day? No, oh, that's maybe fifty grand. Uh, just be able to wake up when you want to. And then, uh, what's it worth not to have to wear a suit and tie every day? That's, that's gotta be another 50 grand. So now we're up to $130,000 a year that I'm earning just from not having a job. So 
<laughs> I mean, when you think of it that way, you got to pay for your food, but still, like, you're way ahead, and that's tax-free. You don't have to pay tax on that value. This episode is with the great Wednesday Martin, Dr. Wednesday Martin. She is the author of several books, uh, Primates of Park Avenue, um, Step Monster, I think, was it Step Monster? I don't know. Um, bestsellers. She's like a high-powered, highfalutin New York authoress. And her latest book is called Untrue. It's fantastic. Uh, I blurbed it, even though I'm in it, kind of. I don't know what the ethical connotations, uh, implications of that are. It's more, more really Cassie's in it, because the book is about... Uh, female sexuality, the misunderstandings around female sexuality, the bias in the science uh, of female sexuality that is primarily because, as in most scientific fields, it's been dominated by men. And so as women get into the field, the whole thing opens up and we get a very different view of the nature of female sexuality, uh, not only in humans, but in other primates. And so it ties in very directly with Sex at Dawn. Uh, it's sort of a updated, and she has a different way. <laughs> to, let's be honest. She has a much more uh, professional way of, of writing books than I do. She goes out and actually interviews the scientists, whereas my style is read their papers and, um, you know, maybe exchange emails, but I didn't really go out and, you know, go into the labs and interview people in person in that sort of journalistic way. Uh I like I like it. I like doing it. Obviously, it's what the podcast is, is conversations and, you know, direct contact with interesting people. But for some reason, in writing books, it didn't seem, uh, at least Sex at Dawn, it didn't seem important or, or maybe it just didn't seem possible since I was living in Barcelona and had no money and the idea of flying to... Canada and, you know, San Diego and just flying around the world interviewing scientists just wasn't even in the realm of possibility. In any case, Wednesday is a fascinating person, super smart, and we've become friends, as you'll hear. And uh, and it's interesting to, to be able to, to speak with someone who's this well-versed and... Um, you know, appropriately shameless about these issues, as one must be when discussing them and researching them and writing about them. I hope you buy the book, Untrue. It's excellent. It's out this week, which is why I'm releasing this right away. I'm sorry to the people who are waiting, who have uh, recorded episodes and they're getting bumped back in time. It's because this is time sensitive. I want to give her as much support as I can. And so the conversations with people that aren't, you know, releasing a book this week or have a movie coming out this week. Uh, I, I tend to bump them back a little bit. So they're coming soon and they're no less fascinating, uh, for having been bumped a little bit. All right. Wednesday, Martin, the book is untrue. Uh, let's, let's do a, a hiatus from, uh, begging for money and reminding you of t-shirts and Amazon affiliate links and all that stuff. Let's just do a bullshit-free, totally bullshit-free episode with Wednesday Martin talking about Untrue. This tune is called On Natural, 
and it's by a band called Sweetback. It's kind of old. I think it probably came out in the 90s at some point. Um, but it's a song about female sexual empowerment, I do believe, uh, which seems appropriate. So it's All Natural uh, by Sweetback. And this is Wednesday Martin coming up soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Thank you for sending in your audio clips. You can send them to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. That's intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Hope to hear from you. Thanks, everybody. Hope everyone's going great out there. Brothers recollect, true romance with respect, so brothers recollect.
boost my morale Start child to creation all natural Let's explore realms of infantile Foreclose the facets linked to excel I defeat the art to boost my morale Start child to creation all natural Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Wednesday Martin. It's the return of Dr. Wednesday Martin. I'm back. Her book is now out. And so this is the sort of promotional uh, episode that we aspired to last time. I don't remember what we talked about last time. I we think it just went so off. so off-road. In a good off-road. way. Off-road. That would we be a good off- name for a podcast. We were off-road. Off-road. <laughs> <laughs> Four-wheeling. All right, but this time we're going to stay focused because you're an author and you're promoting your book and it's just out. And yeah, let's stay on message like the GOP. Stay on message. Stay on message. Right. Like I killers. Like beer. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's not get depressed. Um, Don't do that to us. The book is called Untrue. Why nearly everything we believe about women, lust, and infidelity is wrong and how the new science can set us free wow yeah like that freedom that call to freedom i love those subtitles how <laughs> they're just these days subtitles have to incorporate absolutely everything about the book so that they show up on google searches and there's all this bullshit that's coming right. to publishing that's right. swelled the subtitles yeah i yeah. liked a long subtitle just because i'm a former sally grad student and in my I just, that's how I think. In long you know subtitles? How, yeah, you know how in an academic paper, there's always like the super long subtitles. Right. So right. that's sort of the long tail of me having been an academic, right. these long, nerdy subtitles. Did you come up with that or did your publisher? I did. Oh, you I did. did. Oh, oh my that, publisher yeah. came up with mine. Oh, wow, I got to do that. Yeah. I mean, it is a group effort, right? Yeah. The title and the subtitle, but I was dead set on untrue. Untrue is great. Yeah, that works. I like it. It works in different. So the different uh, ways in which, how does untrue work? Tell us about why untrue. It's a double entendre. Uh Um, First of all, it's a euphemism that we used to use for a woman who committed infidelity. Right. right? It was just sort of almost even more removed from the term unfaithful as euphemism. Oh, girl, why can't you be true? Why can't you be true? Um, So... You know, I'm studying female infidelity, so untrue works for that. But it's also a reference to just all the biased science and social science, Mm. not just about female infidelity, because there's a lot of bias in the science about that, but about female sexuality in general. Right. Just decades and decades of lies about female sexuality. Mm. Um, And also, I also, I guess there's a third sense to the word untrue, which is that when we're looking at the adulteress or the woman who refuses monogamy, there's this fixation on female deception. Mm. Um, and, and with powerful women, too, we're, we're just obsessed that we're deceptive. Jezebel, 
Blind, so it's a lying entendre. Hillary. Yeah. It's a triple entendre, nice. yeah. Because so the it sort of wraps in women cheating, biased science, and female deception into one word. Let me just pat myself on the back for that. Yeah, that's oh, well done. Well done. <laughs> you stuck the landing there. You do have to be important. Uh, sorry, you have to be careful about titles. Yeah. 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 Also, you have to be important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday's jet lagged. I'm so we're we're going to give Wednesday the jet lag waiver. If she says nonsense, we'll that. just we'll just go right past it and Thank pretend you. we didn't hear it. Uh, but you did get that triple entendre, so mm-hmm. it's a wash. It's um, like a triple sow cow. Yeah, exactly. Triple axle sow cow. I, I can't even. Sow cow. We don't know. We're not part of that not, ice skating yeah. culture. We don't yeah. know what that means. Yeah, no idea. Triple axle. Yeah, axle. I think it's spinning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something to do with. Um. So, what do you think? So, your books about female infidelity. Previously, mm-hmm. you've written books about rich Upper East Side matrons. Mm-hmm. They were too young to be matrons, but yeah. Matronettes. Ma- ma- Want to be matrons? Young mommies. Matrons. Mommies of young children. Young on rich mommies. Mm-hmm, that's right. right. And before that. Are you a traitor? Stepmothers. Are you a traitor to your class? Because you were living on the Upper East Side at the time, mm, right? I was living on the Upper East Side, and I was a. I like to think of myself as a participant observer. And I was really open with the women. I said, oh, I'm writing a book about mommies on the Upper East Side. Can you help me? Mm. And, of course, because nobody gives a shit about mothers in our culture except to judge them. Nobody talks to them about their experiences or asks them about their cultural logic and the world they live in. A lot of women were really happy to tell me about it and very supportive when the book came out. Right. Yeah. But then you got some backlash. Well... Was that more from the sort of uh, media world as opposed to I the women so. in, I that think you so. I think there's a real desire to engineer catfights uh, uh, when it comes to books about female subjectivity and women's experiences and women's lives. I think mm-hmm. so. I think that was a very uh, delicious narrative for people, but. You know, the truth That's is the truth is more boring, which is that I still have a lot of girlfriends on the Upper East Side, and they helped me write the book, and they were really excited about it. But you moved to the Upper West Side. I did. Were you kicked wow. out? Were no. you, like, run out of town no. through the park? Get you across the park, girl. <laughs> you know, the amazing thing about New York is that that park is like a moat full of snapping alligators. People <laughs> just We just say, oh, God, I have to go across town. And uh, we act like, yeah. you know, we're crossing the Amazon. yeah. yeah. Um, I like the west side. I mean, but, you know, the east side needs the west side to make sense. The west side needs the east side. Uh, Uptown needs downtown. It's a yin-yang situation. Yep, it's like like bogus notions of male sexuality need bogus notions of female sexuality to make sense. Well, the catfight thing is interesting because, you know, I often think about the difference between chimps and bonobos coming Mm -hmm. down to the fact that female bonobos stick together yeah, and female do. chimps are fragmented and powerless. Yeah, and that's and they're both. Um, the funny thing is, they're both male philopatric species. So, meaning in both cases, the females are the underdogs, right? Because they leave their natal groups, and they say, "Can I please come into your group?" And the right. males stay there for a lifetime, and they have these kin networks. And yeah. They have a power base. So you would think that female bonobos would be abject like female chimps. And they're smaller than males. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the sexual dimorphism, but the deal with female chimps 
clearly, as you and your listeners probably know, is the males sexually coerce them. Um, females and males alike commit acts of violence against low-ranking female chimps. They um, there's a risk of infanticide. It's a very real risk, and there's a risk when they transfer into a new troop that they'll be killed. Meanwhile, bonobos, also a female philopatric species, but a female bonobo leaves her natal group, comes into a new group, finds the most powerful female, and has sex with her. And then she has sex with all the other females, and they enjoy that. If a male and a female solicit a female bonobo at the same time, she's more likely to have sex with the female. And the reason for that is that it feels really good. Right? Bonobos have these much more externalized than we do, forward-facing, richly innervated clitorides. The plural of clitoris is clitorides. Just gave you something fun to say at a cocktail party, listeners. <laughs> so they do this because it feels good, Crossword right? Crossword puzzles, fans yeah, are just tuning in. put it in there right now. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of putting it in, I learned from talking to Dr. Amy Parrish that female bonobos clitorides get sufficiently engorged that they use them for intromission. Really? Like hyenas? Yeah, it's like a dildo that will never let you, can never misplace it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, as she said, Amy Parrish said, it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens enough that you notice it. So anyway, Hmm. here they are having sex with each other, and it builds very powerful coalitions. Right. So they're not abject like female chimps. In fact, according to Amy Parrish, you will not see a male bonobo lift his hand against a female and, you know, not regret it. Yeah, yeah. If if he does, all the females will attack him That's and right. bite his fingers off. Or bu- I mean, they, we always talk about how peaceful bonobos are, but if they no. get pissed off, they do damage. Listen, and what we can't ignore uh, in terms of thinking about our evolutionary prehistory and the evolutionary prehistory of female sexuality, human female sexuality, is that it's not just that bonobos can be violent, it's that 96% of violent acts that require in a zoo for a veterinarian to intervene, 96% of those acts of serious violence are committed by females against males. So we really, Amy looked at... You're talking about bonobos. mm -hmm, Yeah, Amy looked at the veterinary records and she realized that almost all of the near lethal violence was females against males. So we really can't ignore the fact that they're a female dominant species. We can't ignore the fact of female violence against males and among bonobos. And that um, they're sort of, I call them the original lesbian matriarchy hookup culture. Their power base comes from the females having sex with each other. But they also have, let's not underplay the amount of sex they have with males. They do have sex with males. Um, And here's something interesting that Amy Parrish discovered is that um, not infrequently, she said, the situation of female male sex looks coercive to her. 
So I listened to her say that, and I heard her saying that the males were sexually coercing the females. And I said, how can that be when the females, it's a female-dominant species? And she said, no, I mean the females sexually coerce the males. Uh, okay. So she right. and zookeepers, uh, by the way, she and Franz Duvall uh, have written extensively about how, and other primatologists too, about how uh, under human care bonobos behave much as they do um, in the wild. They only live in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. So it's not a question of, oh, but they're under human care, so they're behaving right. in weird ways. They're not. Um, but so what she documented and what zookeepers have documented is that sometimes a female will solicit a male and he'll be into it and they'll have sex. But sometimes, and you know, you know what they do, right? They put their arms around each other. Hmm. So sometimes what will happen is a female will put her arm around a male as a way to say, let's do it. And he shrugs her off and walks away and she does it again and again and again and again and she won't let go and she won't take no for an answer and what Dr. Amy Parrish and zookeepers have observed is that then you know the female bonobo might basically force the male bonobo to have sex with her um, which is technically possible to do because they ha the males have erections from anxiety from you know being dominated and and coerced sexually um, and then the females have sex with the males who give distress vocalizations and try to escape so this is something that we haven't really accounted for wow. in our research about female sexuality is this part of our backstory what does it mean? What does it tell us? We need to start thinking about it more. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. it, it, it sheds some sort of light on like the whole dominatrix situation, right? Like guys who get off on interesting being dominated by women mm -hmm. i've had several dominatrixes on this podcast you have and also a humiliatrix oh a humiliatrix right. yeah it's a, like sub -genre. a subcategory sub yeah. a subculture of a subculture <laughs> we love that just drill it right down yeah did yeah. you have anybody who um is a yeah you can close that window did you have anybody who is like i can't remember what the term is but her sole thing is to get the guy to give her money well, yeah, the humiliatrix does the mm -hmm. blackmail thing. Right. Right. Because there's some men who their whole thing is just what gets them off is giving women money. Right. And so they just want to be told that, which is an interesting... Yeah. Wow, we could draw like an interesting line thing. from bonobos to the guys who are into that, right? I guess, I yeah. never thought I mean, I had it. never heard this about the, the coercive aspect of bonobo sexuality before. Mm -hmm. This is news to it's me. It's in Untrue, and um, Amy and I had a long talk about it, and one of the most interesting things about Amy Parrish's career is all the resistance that she has encountered. For a long time, um, there was resistance even to the very basic idea that bonobos were a female-dominant species. And to primatologists um, who are on this side of the argument, they obviously are. They eat first in captivity and in the wild. Um, they're groomed much more often. Yeah. You'll see that uh, powerful female bonobos who are socially powerful are nearly bald because grooming takes off little tiny bits of hair. Mm. So often they'll have like a Shrek-like appearance, mm. which goes with being powerful. You know, everybody wants to groom you, so you have less hair. So those are two obvious signs um, of female dominance. But then, you know, when you look at the veterinary charts about injuries, then the story starts to become even more compelling and undeniable. Um, but 
Amy Parrish talks about how there were papers for a long time saying, um, bonobos are a species without hierarchy. Or bonobos don't really have a hierarchy. Yeah. There isn't a dominance thing. And then they just can't my, see it. Yeah, and yeah. then my favorite thing was um, the primatologist who said, bonobos are a species where the, the males let the females think that they're dominant. <laughs> there was actually such a paper. I won't name names. Yeah. So there is tremendous resistance to this idea of matriarchy is not really a term from social science, um, but there is a tremendous resistance to this idea of a female dominant species, and so that has distorted our ability to see the actual uh, social and sexual behavior right. on the ground. Yeah, I saw the same thing when I was reviewing anthropological literature, mm -hmm. how there were societies that were clearly matriarchal in the sense that property was passed from mother to daughter. Mm -hmm, they're matrilineal, uh, matrilineal, matrilocal. The naming, yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So you had all these indications of female dominance, and, and again, the language starts to limit the conversation. And what I concluded was that anthropologists, male anthropologists, weren't able to recognize this because it didn't look like the inverse of male dominance. That mm -hmm. the way that the women um, exercised power wasn't the inverse of the way men exercise power. So it wasn't recognizable as power. Right. It was more coalitional. It was more affiliative, uh, affiliative and inclusive of the men. Perhaps cooperative. Yeah, um, it wasn't that coercive. building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they weren't bonobos. Um, but they, but no, but I mean, this whole thing with bonobos, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, the, the data on violence being directed at males is interesting, but I'd want to know a lot more about the situations in order to understand whether that violence was that the males were getting out of hand and needed to be backed down, what, if there which were is challenges. what I understand mm -hmm. from Franz Duval, for example, mm -hmm. that if a young male starts harassing a female, all the females will go after him. And then lesson learned. Right. Right. There's one male in Frankfurt who's um, had two mutilated digits. And yeah. another one whose uh, penis was either severed from his body or um, nearly severed in half. It was reattached and ultimately oh, he really? went on to reproduce. But it would be interesting to know the specific contexts that elicited right. a, a violent Is it provoked response. or like what's going on? Are there? you trying to have yeah. sex with a female bonobo who's doing G to G rubbing? Are you trying to, yeah. That's genital genital rubbing that right. when they like to rub their clitorides together and then they shriek while they're doing it. Um, but to right. your point about matrilineal, matrilocal cultures and male anthropologists for a long time not seeing it, it's great um, when women enter these fields. I think they just bring uh, new forms of compassion and empathy and identification and just which which means new forms of scientific curiosity on the most basic level this has sort of been Sarah Hurdy's point about why primatology shifted um, but I was thinking about how you said uh, the male anthropologist not recognizing this as as a version of power because it was unfamiliar to them and it it reminded me of how when women entered the field of sex research, we learned about different desire styles. Hmm. Before, desire was a monolith. 
right. right? And it was just that kind of desire where it comes over you like hunger, and suddenly you want to have sex. Male desire. And on that measure, men far outpaced women. So for right. decades, we thought men have stronger libidos than women. Right. Rosemary Basson comes along and she says, what if there are different desire styles? What if that monolithic thing that we've been calling desire, desire is a particular part of desire, right. kind of desire and has a name, and so she called it spontaneous desire. And then, as you know, um, she realized that there were these other desire styles that kind of intersect with each other, responsive desire and triggered desire. Mm. And uh, what Meredith Chivers and other sex researchers after Rosemary Basson have um, discovered is that when we measure correctly, female desire is every bit as strong as male desire, but we needed to have that metric of responsive or triggered desire in order to understand that women are sexual. And that happened when women entered the field. So it's mm -hmm. an exciting time. Um, and yeah. that's a lot of what Untrue is about, sort of bringing um, together the insights and the data from these different um, social scientists who are kind of changing up our cultural narrative about female sexuality. I just wanted to cross it over. I wanted men and women and people who identify as neither who don't read that data to have access to some of the findings. So yeah. that's been a fun mission. But yeah. I, I do think that part of it is just when the fields change and when there are equal numbers of men and women in these different fields of scientific inquiry, the cultural narrative shifts in dramatic ways. And that's been happening for the last 40 years. We just don't know about it yet. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that you know, there, there's this list of things that scientists say are uniquely human, you know, tool use, and <laughs> then they're like, oh, that doesn't work. And right. then, you know, war, then that didn't work. And uh -huh. then uh, they just keep right. coming. And at some point, uh, female orgasm was proposed. Yeah, and that's not uniquely human right. at all. And then women came into the labs and saw the primates and were like, she's coming. And like, right, you exactly. You guys didn't notice You that? guys didn't notice. So six different species of macaques. The right. Last, the yeah, last, I think they were macaques. The last I learned, it was six different species yeah. of macaques and chimps and bonobos, who are, of course, our closest relatives. And we know um, because... Um, we started, we, you and I. So yeah. you and I. <laughs> Back in our lab days. <laughs> went to, uh, we didn't, but primatologists developed uh, these ways of measuring uterine contractions. Mm -hmm. And they also um, looked at the females. And right. the female primatologists said, oh, they're making an O face. An O face, <laughs> right. <laughs> Just the O face. And if you look at the O faces of macaques and bonobos uh -huh. and chimps at the magical moment, they're a lot like um, the human female O face that she makes uh, at orgasm. One of my favorite moments of my career was sitting in the living room of the great comparativist um, and sociobiologist Sarah Hurdy. And, oh, up in uh, mm -hmm. uh, California You've been on the there. Farm? Yeah, on the yeah, Walnut Farm. Yeah. You've been there. And she made an O-Face for me <laughs> and did a dramatic performance of an O-Face. Oh. And I thought, wow, I can die now. Because yeah. I, I kind of saw Sarah Hurdy have an orgasm. Yeah, kind of. She's mm -hmm. faking it. And then her husband, Dan, walked in and he said, what are you talking about? Um, and she said, we're talking about female orgasm. And he walked out of the room and said over his shoulder, I've heard a lot about that. Because <laughs> he's married to Sarah Hurdy, a, a great theoretician of female yeah. orgasm. So, right, we know that female orgasm is not uniquely human. And that suggests that it is an 
old and um, probably really useful adaptation. Yeah. Hmm. How do bonobo orgasms compare to human? Do we know? I haven't had sex with enough female bonobos yet, so I don't know. Well, they're they're definitely multi-orgasmic. You know, I don't know that we have studies on female bonobo orgasm. We need them. Where let's are the get millennials? To it, Amy Parrish. Yeah, let's get to it and all. students. Yep, Amy Parrish and her mentees yeah. are going to find out for us. Wouldn't it be great if there were a whole revolution in primatology um, where, in the same way that we started, uh, primatologists started getting interested in um, sexual selection or female choice, if all the primatologists suddenly said, we're going to start focusing on female orgasm? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's certainly a, a huge area of interest in, in humans, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why do some women have multiple orgasms? Right. Some don't. Like, the whole squirting thing is, like, a big interest, you mm-hmm. know, source of intrigue. Right. Um, you know, and orgasmic difficulties. I remember when we were working on Sex at Dawn, I, I said, I was reading this paper, and it was like... Uh, you know, I think it was like 35% of women um, never or rarely have orgasm at all, I think it was. And then another, you know, 30% who do rarely or never have it from intercourse. And then lesbians have orgasms all over the place. Right. Almost They're all the time. Much like more the, likely to have orgasm There's with a woman. hardly any orgasm gap um, for lesbians yeah. but bisexual women and straight women there's a huge orgasm gap between them and and men right. so um well wait, wait, before you go on what i was going to say is yeah. i read this to casilda and oh, she said my favorite american women oh and i was like what what do you yeah, mean she's like well us. come on in mozambique that's not the and she worked in gynecology and, mm-hmm. and sexual uh, research in Mozambique and she was like, nah, it's not. There's nothing like that in Mozambique. So it's orgasm right. is extremely susceptible to cultural influence. It is in very, women. It is, and it's also very right. What you see a lot of women in the industrialized West doing is having what sex researchers call service sex. Hmm. And bad science brought us there. So service sex is when you have sex because the other person wants to and you think that you owe it to them and you say, okay, let's get this over with and you have it. And as Marta Miana has pointed out, it doesn't feel great to give service sex and it doesn't feel great to get it. So it's really not good for anybody. Uh, There's a pretty rigid gender script about service sex in the industrialized West. It tends to be women giving it to men. Although sometimes men give more selling sex. it, right? Transactional sex is a little different from service sex. Oh. Service sex is in the context of a relationship oh, I see. when one partner, more often a woman, just says, "Okay, my partner wants to have sex, so we're going to do this." Right. And service sex comes to us from bad science—the bad science that taught us men just want sex more than women do, and um, monogamy is harder for men. And the truth of the matter now, now that we know that we have uh, all this cool new sex research data, is that long-term relationships are harder on female desire than they are on male desire in the aggregate. And how do you measure that? Uh, well, you know, you're Marta Miana and you talk to women for a really long time in a longitudinal study. 
about how they're experiencing low desire in their relationships. Hmm. Or you're Leanna Wolf and See, you talk I, to women I'm who resistant. are going on. Yeah, I'm resistant to these statements of this is harder for women or harder for men. I well, feel like what we it's know. like what we say about desire. How are you measuring it? Because mm -hmm. if you're measuring it in a way that women find makes sense to them, then yeah, it might be harder for women. But if you I mean, men have a real hard time with monogamy, clearly. They do. We do. What I think that what we can say, what I'm comfortable saying after interviewing 30 experts about it and reading a lot of the same studies that you did, is that women are not more naturally primed for monogamy than men are, and that we struggle with it equally, but we express it in different ways, thanks yeah. to bad science. So yeah. here's one of the ways that women express it. After... A certain amount of time when novelty has worn off, um, women in the aggregate are less interested in having sex in their long-term partnership, and they stop. And men are still interested and solicit and ask and want, and women retreat. Sometimes this is a psychodynamic that a lot of therapists talk about and sex researchers. And then what happens is women say, because of bad science, well, I'm a woman, and it means that I let, like sex less. What she hasn't considered and her partner hasn't considered, sorry that we're just talking about heterosexuality here, but that's what most of the sex research data is about. And what, they, what people don't consider, unfortunately, enough is that, like a man, she needs variety and novelty of sexual experience and some sexual adventure, and that without it, she shuts down, and that her time frame is that happens to her a little sooner than it happens to a man. Now, this is a controversial position, but to me, when you look at primate social and sexual behavior, you look at the work of somebody like Meredith Smalls, who's a comparativist, and she looked at dozens of species of non-human primates, and she said the single most observable behavioral characteristic in a non-human primate female is the search for sexual novelty. Yeah. They crave it, they desire it, they seek it out at tremendous risk, right? Yeah. They go out, they leave the troop, they try to find a new male, and they might really get their asses kicked in the process. And if a male from the troop sees them doing it, they might experience near lethal violence. They keep on doing it. So my view is that based on the experts that I talked to and based on the primatological literature, um, there's a real case to be made that women do get sexually bored and then they quickly say, this is because I don't like sex. What if we shifted the cultural narrative and said, what the sex research data and the primatology suggest is that these women in their long-term relationships need sexual adventure and variety and novelty every bit as much as men do and it seems like they need it sooner. What can we do? That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, We're closer than we thought, yeah. basically. Right, Tammy Nelson says that. She wrote The New Monogamy. And she says from years closer of Closer to each other. Men and women yeah. are closer to each other in the need right. for novelty and right. variety and adventure than, we, Which, you than know, we've ever acknowledged. How could acknowledged. it not be? We evolved together. We're the same species. You know, exactly. that's, I, it never made sense to me that you'd have, you know, and one of the propellants of writing Sex at Dawn was this notion that, oh, women are not so interested in variety. Men are. And, you know, like, well, wait a minute. We evolved together. It doesn't make sense. We evolved together. And for, for females, um, there was even uh, more 
uh, pressure, if you will. It might have been even more adaptive to seek out a lot of um, novelty because of sampling, all the great things that came from sampling. And you write about this in you Sex mean sperm competition? Um, well, I mean, now you're saying sperm competition, so that's from a particular viewpoint. And then if you shift the viewpoint, getting a variety of sperm so that you up your odds of heterozygosity. And so that you, right? You're like, let me just like get sperm from a few males. Mm -hmm. And my cervix can be the judge of this because my eyes kind of suck in mm -hmm. terms of choosing a great partner. My nose is unreliable. Like there's a little bit. What about bit... female orgasm as a selection mechanism? Okay. So gosh, can I finish my point? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say that there were, there are all these reasons, all these benefits, and you know what they are. You get a wide variety of sperm. You hedge against the possibility that one male is infertile. You line up a bunch of uh, males two or three who might be willing to provision you and your offspring, right? Which leads to better outcomes, which leads to more pregnancies, which leads to increased reproductive fitness. Social cohesion. Okay, social cohesion, all the things that you write about in Sex at Dawn. So people are very resistant to the idea that the female primate, including the human female, likely evolved particularly for promiscuity because of all those benefits under particular ecological circumstances that were far from uncommon. So how does female orgasm play into this? And um, I think you already know the answer. Um, but Sarah Hurdy writes about how there is a fundamental mismatch between a male capable of one copulatory bout of five minutes and a female who needs about 20 minutes of stimulation from intercourse to have an orgasm. Hmm, what do we do about that fundamental mismatch? Well, given how adaptive it was to sample a wide variety of partners, and given how we see rapid serial consorting, that is, fucking a bunch of males one after the other among non-human female primates, what if the human female evolved for rapid serial consortship with a series of, ma of, of males, one in a row. Let's just start calling it that, at the bar or right, on an right. app. So, you know, Sarah yeah. Hurdy put forward this idea that female orgasm may have evolved so that a woman, say, would keep seeking in that 20-minute period that it took her to build up go from one male to the next male to the next male to the next male until she got the ultimate payoff that some of us were in a very elite club have a multiple orgasm so that's her theory um, about the evolution of female orgasm and that it had to do not just with mating multiply but with mating multiply within a really small window of time like 20 minutes, several several males in that 20-minute period of time. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of resistance to that idea. And a lot of um, basically slut-shaming of female primatologists who caught into it. So that was an interesting moment um, in primatology. And we have yet to unpack what female orgasm means and what it can tell us about the backstory of female sexuality, but it is cool. And there are physiological changes that happen together with orgasm yeah. for women that, to my understanding, increase the chances of fertilization. Well, yeah, there are some people who believe they're the upsuckers. 
Right. The upsuckists. You write about them in Sex at Dawn. Upsuckists. Yeah. Um, and, right. So, oh, well, this is really cool. There is this sex educator named Mal Harrison. And she, after they did the mapping of the clitoris, you, you know about the internal clitoris and the female erectile network, right? Everybody listening, if you don't know about the female erectile network, just Google it right now while you're listening to this podcast. And when the female erectile network pops up, just think of me. Um, <laughs> oh, you asked for it. <laughs> so the female erectile uh, network is this amazingly uh, vast organ. Um, the urethral sponge, which is we think now is what we used to call the G-spot and which uh, is responsible for women squirting. The perineal sponge, uh, which is near your anus, and it's spongy erectile tissue back there that makes anal sex really pleasant for some women. And then the um, vestibular bulbs, which is erectile tissue under the labia, and the crura, which kind of wing back towards your anus for some fun times back there. And then, of course, what, what we've all seen the tiniest part of the clitoris, which is the glands, which is something like 14 um, times more sensitive uh, than the male glands of the penis, right? Okay. Same nerve cells, right? Just packed mm -hmm. much more tightly. That's right. Same parts developed a little differently. Same embryonic right. junk nope. that just goes through a different process. Right. So on the inside, here's the cool thing, and you might know about August McLaughlin, who wrote a book called Girl Boner, is that pound per pound, ounce per ounce, women have as much erectile tissue as men do, mm. but it's on the inside. It's internal, right. Women wake up with a heart on. Really? In the morning. No kidding. Yep. It's called nocturnal clitoral um, engorgement. engorgement. And then um, when we get turned on, um, we get erections. So it's uh, not mm. something that people know about. It's kind of yeah. crossing over. I think millennials are really, right. and Gen, Gen Z right. women and men know about it more than we do. But the internal clitoris you know, tells us a, a really important story, which is only women have this one organ devoted entirely to pleasure that's right. so extensive, right? The penis is functional as right. well as for pleasure. Um, so, you know, what are we to make of this? And, you know, to me, what's clear is that women are more sexual than we've allowed them to be in this particular cultural container, and that rather than evolving from monogamy or a pair bond um, or even serial monogamy, um, they may have evolved for promiscuity. Right. So what do you do with, uh, is it Meredith Chivers? Is she Canadian? Mm -hmm, right. She is. And did she do the research where she showed straight men, straight women, gay women, mm -hmm. gay men, That's the same stimulants and then measured their, their physiological response as right. well as their conscious awareness of their response. And she doesn't like, so she is, she's a Canadian um, sex researcher and she runs a lab at um, Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Right. And Dan Bergner wrote about her work, although she's done quite a bit of work uh, since his book came out. And so, yes, this is exactly what she did and does. She has her um, study participants sit 
basically in a lazy boy, and they hook themselves up with the... I always mispronounce yeah, this. Plasthemograph. Yeah. Right, and then she... Which measures genital blood flow in men and women. In men and women, how much... It's like a dildo with... You can tell how much blood is going to engorge the clitoris and labia and all that good stuff, all that erectile tissue. How erect is it getting? How much blood is rushing? And, right, she discovered, basically, to make a long story short, that women who identify as heterosexual had a much wider menu of sexual stimuli that their bodies responded to. Like, almost everything turned them on. Yes. And the range was like... A heterosexual couple having sex, two women two having women, sex, two, two men. men. Group sex. Bonobos. Bonobos having sex. Just a just an erect penis. And then like a hot guy in the gym or right. a hot woman in the gym. Nothing erotic, right. just working out. The only thing that didn't turn this women on, I remember, and I laughed really hard, was Fabio. <sighs> they saw Fabio and he did nothing. Everything else turned these women on. They were like super freaks. Poor Fabio. So straight women. Remind me to tell you a Fabio story okay. later. <laughs> so anyway, what Meredith Chivers basically discovered is that women have, uh, you know, a really, really wide sexual menu. Right. Straight women. And that straight men's sexual menu is what she calls category specific. They say, I'm pretty much, I'm a straight guy. And they're pretty much turned on by the things that you would think straight right. guys are turned on. Now, here's the interesting but thing. But also the gay men and the gay women were category specific. They, they had pretty category specific desires. The ones with the freakiest, most category confounding desires were heterosexual women. I just love the idea that straight men might be listening and just get a window into the fact that their female partner is just weirder than they ever knew. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Okay, but let's let's dig into this, okay? Mm. Because now, and it's been years since I read this research, but what I remember being particularly intrigued by was not only the fact that the so-called straight women, we're calling them heterosexual, but in fact they're responding to all these different types mm-hmm. of stimulus. So are, is there even such a thing as a heterosexual woman, right? right. I mean, in light of this Fun research. Question. And then, if I remember correctly, she also had something like a dial on the table where the people were indicating how turned on they were by what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. And the gay men, the lesbians, and the straight men, their indications aligned with the physiological response, but the so-called straight women, their they weren't aware of what was turning them on. I asked cases. Meredith Chivers about that. Oh, good. She felt that that had been misrepresented. Oh, okay. And she, so this was a really interesting conversation that I got to have with her at STAR, the Society of Sex Therapy and yeah, Researchers, Researchers Conference, yeah. right? And it was in Montreal that year. And I sat down with her and she said, I don't like it when it's reported that way. And I felt that it was misrepresented. And she said that she had revisited that. And that she had had proven in her lab in subsequent studies, in a 2014 study, she asked men and women to report arousal levels after viewing pornography, and the self-reporting was identical. So this is her latest so take she, she on that. So she did the same, the same broad she had, array of stimulants? I don't know what she used. I presume that she did. But she did tell me that in, in a follow-up study, and she wanted to be really clear about it, that plenty of times uh, women were reporting 
identical levels of arousal as men. In other words, she doesn't like that her research is, uh, she felt that it was misrepresented that women were being deceptive about what turned them on or that they felt that they couldn't say it. And in subsequent testing, these women were very clearly indicating arousal and their arousal levels were really very comparable to men's. So See, you, but I did, that wasn't my conclusion. Well, none, well, of, none of those was my conclusion. Not that they were being receptive, oh. not that they were confused, and not that their arousal levels were lower than men. What I took away from that was that women's perception of their uh, sexual response is more susceptible to cultural influence which makes sense a woman it wakes up with a heart sense. on she doesn't she see doesn't it. know it well a also she hasn't been told on. it's not just that she doesn't see it it's that nobody has told her because nobody cared to study the anatomy of right the female i mean that's so, true but mm -hmm. there is also the fact that when a guy ha is aroused it's unavoidable. It's right there. You, mm -hmm. You've got a tent in your bed. You're in your pants. You're hiding your dick with your physics book in 10th grade. Is your erectile tissue more on the outside? For sure. Right. No question. But look, all I can tell you is that I spoke to her. But you should speak to her about it. You should have her on. And I'd love to, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. She, what, I, what I know is that she rejected that idea that somehow women were being deceptive or not tuned in, and she said plenty of women are very tuned into their arousal in, in my studies. So she felt that that was misrepresented. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you should have her on because her, her new research is, is so exciting. But see, okay, I, I think this is really important because I think this is – your book, Untrue, is very much about how women's desire is equal to men's desire. If we measure correctly. But not the same. Because you need to measure it in a different way. It expresses, it manifests in different ways. And also to your point, because it really depends on ecological circumstances, right? If you're Himba, and you're, you live in northern Namibia, and you're Himba, and you're semi-nomadic uh, pastoralist who, who lives there, and you live in a culture um, where female infidelity is an accepted fact of life, and there are no secrets about it. You know, Obviously, your sexuality is in a different container than in the United States, where women might experience lethal violence sure. uh, for infidelity. So there's, I am completely um, down with that idea about the cultural container. And of course, female sexuality happens at the confluence of the clitoris and culture. There are uh, physiological and anatomical underpinnings, but it's going to be expressed in such radically different ways right. depending on where. But here's the fascinating thing, that even in places where women die from infidelity, they keep doing it. They're not stopping. Uh, in a survey of 133 societies, uh, Meredith Small found that there was not a single one without female infidelity. We right. cannot extinguish it. Right. Um, and we're just starting to understand the female libido. Um, we're just starting to even have metrics to understand it. Right. I'm calling that the great correction. Right. Um, because I think there is a great correction going on in social science. We just have to start listening to it and crossing it over. And your book, your book did that. Um, and I hope to do it with my book, too. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you're so right about the importance of cultural context. And that 
is I really think that's the strength of looking at the worldwide ethnographic data is you see the radical differences in expression um, of female sexuality in different cultures. Um, so, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt oh, you if you're I was just, your point. No, I was just thinking about Marjorie Shostak's work yeah. with Nisa, the oh, Kung woman. I love that book I so love much. that book. And wasn't it so interesting that when Marjorie Shostak went back and Nisa was older, right? She was maybe 55, which made her... And Marjorie was dying yeah, and knew it. And knew it. And they went... She went back and she continued this series of conversations that she had had with Nisa about her life as a woman. And Marjorie Shostak was really interested in Nisa's sexuality and the sexuality of traditional hunter-gatherer women um, because that's how we lived for over 90% of our evolutionary history, right? So she thought we could really get a lot of clues from this that would tell us about our contemporary sexual selves. So she goes back and Nisa's really old. And she has these three guys around her. One seems like he might be like the equivalent of a houseboy to help out. He's young and vital. Then she has her husband, who's a little bit older than she is. And she has this other guy who's maybe her age. And she says, so what's your relationship with these men? And she says, well, so-and-so is my husband. We've been together for a really long time. Uh, We have fun together. We have a history. Sometimes I'm mad at him. Sometimes I'm happy with him. Uh, this other one is my lover. He's um, just different from my husband and gives me different things and gives me beads that I like that my husband doesn't give me and we have sex in ways that my husband doesn't and it's interesting and fun for me, basically, she said. And then Marjorie Shostak points to the one that she presumes is helping with errands or <laughs> firewood or whatever. And what about this the one? The pool boy. The 25-year-old. And Nisa says, oh, yes. He's there because he can go all night long. (laughs) So Nisa had this incredibly active sex life across all her life stages. The clitoris um, is, is not estrogen dependent. It will never let you down, although we do know that when our cardiovascular health deteriorates, um, our erections aren't the same. But Nisa Mm. is a great test case about how we need to know more about how female sexuality changes over time, over our life stages, and that when we look at the actual data, there might be huge surprises for us, which is sort of what I'm trying to do in Untrue. Right. You know. Now, and that brings me to this point that I wanted to get to, and, and it's hard to... It's hard to wrap words around it, but it's it's something that I come up against all the time in public discussions and, and you know, this question of equal but different, mm. you know, as far as male and female sexuality goes, it's a phrase that's mm. pretty that charged like to say? in America. Well, yeah. you know, it's it, racial, uh, that's been oh, used right, in, in right, racial right. kind of, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but I mean, we are different. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I, I resisted mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the female desire is greater than male. Like, well, how you, how you measure these things determines what results you're going to find. Well, if you measure accurately, if you measure all different desires, dire styles, yeah, men men have more spontaneous desire. They right. they kick our asses there. Right. Triggered a response of desire. Exactly. That it's tends like to be are, our thing. are men yep. or women and that is faster? A well, how long's the race? Is it uphill <laughs> or downhill? Well, you know, yeah. are you carrying mm-hmm. things? You know, are, are men yeah. or women stronger? Well, mm-hmm. are we talking about how? 
having a baby? Are we talking about right. lifting the piano? Right? Uh-huh. So, and why is that the question? Exactly, uh-huh. right. And so yep. if men are dominant in the field, then they're asking about pianos and let's get women in. So they ask about having babies and like, but in the end, it's kind of like, well, who cares? It depends how you frame it, right? Mm, framing is really important. Right. So, but what I'm really interested in with this, this thing about understanding how female experience is so different from male experience there and tell me if if I'm being a you know a short-sighted male here but it seems to me that female sexuality has so much more um, intangibility around it because like you were talking about Nisa and the life cycle so you know I always criticize a lot of research you know as i was saying earlier 30 percent of women rarely or never and cassie's like yeah that's american mm-hmm. undergrads yeah, sitting in their psych 101 right. class at nine o'clock in the morning with the fluorescent lights yeah you know answering the way they like, think the teacher yeah. wants to know mm-hmm. so there's all that kind of bias built in but then there's also the fact that well at, when you ask a woman about desire it matters what day it is it matters where she is in her menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. It matters where she is in her life cycle. And it matters, like, is she really into period sex? Because some right. women are way into period sex. It matters sex. how bright the light is in the room. It matters how attractive, if it's a man or if she's into women, and it matters how attractive the person asking the there question is. There are a lot is. of variables, and that's the tricky thing about yeah. studying sexuality. There are cultural variables. There are personal preferences. There's what day is it? There's what day am I in my cycle? Here's what really. So am I yeah. right that that all those factors key into women's sexual response far more than they do into men's? I don't know if it's far more. I know that there's a lot more interference and white noise for women in the industrialized West trying to experience their sexuality. Here's an example. Hmm. When we go back and revisit a lot of the studies upon which we have based our assertions of essential differences between male and female sexual strategies, for example, Bateman, right. okay, and his fruit flies. So Bateman says, oh, look at the males. They benefited from mating multiply. We see that the females, when they mated multiply, it was of no benefit from them, for, to them. So we extrapolate from that. Males of all species need to be randy and spread their seed. Right. And females of all species are like choosy and coy and they want you to buy them a drink at the bar and you know, all that. And they're broody and they want one great guy. Okay, Patricia Gowati, right, in her lab here at UCLA revisited the Bateman fruit fly study. It, it held sway from 1948 until she revisited the study in either 2012 or 2013. And what did she find? The females and the males both benefited from mating multiply. Second huge study that is, not a huge study, but a study that's hugely cited and that we have invested a lot of energy into that study is proving Hmm. some essential neat differences. You know what I'm going to say, which is the Florida State University study where they asked uh, undergraduate men and undergraduate women, they had a an attractive confederate they confederate. called the <laughs> not a yankee <laughs> go out with a clipboard and yeah. say hey how you doing i was wondering if you'd like to have sex with me wow the guys said yes and the women said no okay people went back and revisited that study yeah. and they created to your point about context they evened up the circumstances i believe this was terry conley who we really need to go out and have a drink with her hmm. and so they revisited the study and they 
basically said to the women, if there were no danger of becoming pregnant, and if nobody in your dorm would see you, and nobody would find out, your mom wouldn't find out, and he would text you afterwards if you wanted or not, if you didn't want him to, and you're guaranteed to have an orgasm, mm -hmm. now what are you going to say? Right. Statistically insignificant difference in response rates. So what I'm saying mm -hmm. is that when we go back and look at a lot of this pseudo the science it turns out to be sort of junk science and to have been really inflected by expectations ahead of the data actually coming in or to your point about context we needed to take context into account and create sort of equal scenarios in which it was equally meaningful to mm. say yes or no right a woman can't say yes to an attractive confederate when she's so much more likely than a man to be murdered by that attractive confederate. Right. When we even out the situation, I do think that we find a lot of similarities. Meanwhile, do I find differences compelling? I really do. And I think we may have misread them, as with orgasm. Oh, maybe women have these, um, maybe orgasm is, female orgasm is such a moody bitch because it doesn't matter. Maybe female orgasm is a moody bitch because it evolved that way so that the female would keep going and keep trying multiple males all in a row so she could get that earth-shattering payoff of a multiple orgasm. We just have to introduce new frames and new perspectives um, to interpret the right. facts that are there. And I find it an exciting moment yeah. um, that, that we're looking at things in new ways. And maybe female orgasm isn't a moody bitch at all. Right. It's not if you're a lesbian. Yeah. With another lesbian. Right. Then you're coming as often as men are. You know, people say like, oh, that's such an oversimplification that um, if women have sexual autonomy, if we if we accept that female infidelity is as normal as male infidelity, like what? why does that really matter? And to me, the reason it's important really is that our response to female infidelity to me is a, an important metric about how we feel about gender equality mm. and i i've said this before but you know it's one thing to say oh i i believe in closing the wage gap between men and women you know i i believe that women should uh, hold political office but when women sees that third privilege that has historically been male and that is so deeply personal and about your body when they seize that privilege infidelity refusing monogamy how do we respond to that how do we really feel about female autonomy hmm. and i think the answer in this country is we don't like it yeah. we don't feel good about it yeah. so that's what i'm true it's interesting your book comes out the same week that the supreme court shifts in a way that may very well take us back decades in terms of female autonomy and all you can think of when you see that happening is what a classic primate strategy that is to control not just female reproduction but you know what is the GOP doing when they go after reproductive choice they're not going after reproductive freedom you guys they're going after sexual freedom they're not just trying to control whether you can terminate a pregnancy they're trying to control whether and how you can have sex in quotes without consequence so it's a and it is a classic strategy. You will see among all non-human primates um, that there are coercive tactics, and one of the most effective ones is to limit female choice, right? If you limit 
um, a breeding female's breeding options, you can control her very effectively and have a lot of power. Right. And through the lens that I look through, that's exactly what's happening with Brett Kavanaugh. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. We have we have far to go before we're at the point of bonobo sisterhood. <laughs> <laughs> but this this might yeah. be the moment that ignites it. Man, if there's a silver lining, that's it. That it gets so it hits rock bottom and and we get the bounce. But we'll see. We'll see. All right, last question for you because we have to go have lunch. We do have to go have lunch. Uh, that's important. Are you a fan of funkadelic? What does that even mean? Do you mean the music? <laughs> I guess not. I'll take that as a no. What is funkadelic? Enlighten you, me. The first chapter of your book is Free Your Mind. Oh, yeah. For, oh, you mean the music. There's a band, Funkadelic, yeah. who has a song yeah. called Free Your Mind, album, Your Ass Will Follow. Free Your Mind, be colorblind. Your Ass Will Follow. Don't be so shallow. Is that no, no, that must be a sample. Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow. The kingdom of be heaven colorblind. is within. Oh, yeah. Free your mind and your ass will follow. George Clinton, yeah. 1972, probably. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's that is what that's from. Psychedelic song. Yeah, yeah, it is. That is what it's from, and it's yeah, it's from that whole era of the 70s. Mm. Um, it's a reference to that. Yeah. What about all the great 70s songs about female infidelity? All of Led Zeppelin. Aretha Franklin. All. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out Mm -hmm. what it means to me. But you know, it's about coming home and fucking me, dude. Yeah. All your kiss is sweeter than honey. Guess what? So is my money. And but the point about Led Zeppelin that's really interesting to me is here they are, this like seventies band, Robert Plant couldn't look more like a sexy, like enlightened guy. Hmm. Right? And it's the era the pill is out there in the world and it's the era of free love. And what is Led Zeppelin singing about in song after song after song? Female infidelity. Is that because they're now, covering blues? Tunes? It's because they're covering the blues, but I think it's also because I think that what was why Led Zeppelin became so big. Sorry, we're, we're now we're away from Funkadelic. Tangentially speaking. Tangentially bitches. speaking. Let me get a little tangential, bitches. Is that I love that Led Zeppelin um, sort of synthesized these two strands. You know, sexual freedom and being completely reactionary and paranoid about female sexuality Hmm. and just reinscribing in this moment of like progressive rock and we have the pill and we have, remember, women's lib, right? We have second wave feminism going and Led Zeppelin seems uh, so progressive and they're doing such cool things musically and Robert Plant has this voice like a cat. His voice a lot of times is like a woman having an orgasm if you listen on a lot of the albums from that era. And yet, they're coming back to, they're connecting with everybody in the world and becoming the biggest rock band of the era because they're back to that trope of being very scared about female infidelity. Hmm. So it's, it's like a, it's a fascinating, um, contradictory cultural moment, sort of like where we are now. We're with Kavanaugh and at the same time, the Great Correction being driven by all these mostly female social scientists. Um, including you and Casilda. So you think the pussycat's out of the bag? (laughs) Let's see what happens with the pussycat because... It feels like... Because Trump is trying to shove the pussycat. Look, Trump wants a chimp male world order. And we're going to see where things end up. Right. Will we be chimps? Will we be hearkening to our 
the chimp narrative, which for so long we've used to justify bad male behavior, and we've used to naturalize a, a weird, a, a very unique dominance hierarchy that's only been around for 3% of Homo sapiens history, where men are on top all the time. Uh, are we going to keep using that chimp narrative to justify female abjection, or are women really going to get angry and shift things it, it's an amazing moment fucking susan collins man like i mean talk about betrayal and you know she's like 53 or 52 percent depending on whose statistic you look at the 52 or 53 percent of white women who voted for trump and they took a look at circumstances and they said do i do better if i align my interests with the great white male coalition? Mm. Or do I risk it all mm -hmm. and put it all on this yeah. and, and take that risk to be annihilated like Hillary Clinton? Interesting. <laughs> and they that, went with Trump. And, and yeah. listen. But black people didn't make that calculation with Obama. You know, it was like, what was it, 95% of black people voted for Obama? And 95% of black women voted for Hillary because they didn't have the luxury to say, maybe I'll align myself with uh, white male privilege so and power. it wasn't an option for them, wasn't is what an you're option. saying, right? Right, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Point. How many, and when people say, oh, why do women, you know, fuck women over? Why aren't women supportive of women? Why did that woman, like, write such a nasty review of my, it's like, the answer is obvious. It, it, you know, a lot of times it's in women's best interest to align themselves with male power. Right. But now, have men made these moves to make women so abject that it's going to be a wake-up moment? Or will it still feel safer and still feel, when they do the calculation and they run the mental calculus, will it still make more sense for these women to align themselves uh, with, with Trump? masculinity we're gonna see stormy daniels gives me hope F stormy daniels feminist hero yeah as Who jill filipovic I mean, said isn't it amazing a porn star stands up to the most powerful man in the world and fucking squashes him humiliates and, him and he, will not apologize and will not right. be slut shamed and, he, and she's the only person that he's not attacking publicly of all his enemies he's not attacking her and i think one of the things that she did with it was so astonishing is she made no accommodation to the double standard right the double standard which is basically you know baked into our country since Plymouth County in Massachusetts yeah. Bay Colony when women who cheated were adulteresses and men who cheated were fornicators, right? That double standard's been with us all along. And she steadfastly refuses to buy into the double standard that it's somehow more shameful for her hmm. to be a sex worker who had sex with him than it is for him to be a president uh, who had sex with her. And lied and to lied. everyone around him. She wasn't lying. That's right. So who's, who's committing the offense here? That's right. So yeah. it would be amazing if a, and it would be amazing and somehow to me feel just if Stormy Daniels were our Joan of Arc. <laughs> Stormy Daniels for president. Storms coming in. <laughs> Storms are coming. Put on your raincoat. Storms are coming. Take shelter. Again and again. Take cover. All right. Thank you for doing this. I'm going to release this right away. So this this will be out within a day or Thanks two. Thanks for having me on to All talk right. about Untrue yeah. in tangential ways. I hope everybody goes out and buys a copy, a hard copy. Of Untrue. Of Untrue. The cover is fantastic, They're going to the love way. the strip tease cover. It's so cool. I it's, did that. 
I did that because people need candy with it's their a, science and social really science. It's a really well designed book. Yeah, the you designer don't think did about a great job with books, but you a have really to. Nice job. You have to when you're trying to um, be a stealth radical and, yeah. and get people to read social science that upends their worldview. You it's have to fun. give them some candy. Well, and also like the way you write, it's fun to read. It's really easy. It like it's not sitting down to read a textbook. You're it's there's laughs and there's surprises. It's really well told. You're Thank a great you for writer. saying that. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Chris, because you are too. And yes, it, there's no point in putting out messaging about female sexuality if it's not fun and accessible. So I do right. think that people will find the book fun and accessible. Those scientists need people like you because they're busy and they can't write that way. They're even busy if, in their even labs. if they know how, they can't because then they get discredited. That's right. You know, I mean, right. you and I get discredited by people like, oh, you know, that book's funny. That, that That's not serious. <laughs> They're not being serious. Yeah. Well, fuck you. My job was never to be taken seriously by Steven Pinker. Right. My right. job is to, you know, present an argument that I think is true. Look, we take this cool science and social science. We analyze it in our own way and we synthesize it and we distill it and we cross it over. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, fuck you. Right. <laughs> Steven. <laughs> no, that's me. That's not you saying that. Uh, my, my animosity with but Steven is, Pinker is it, well established. It is, I think it is really uh, important for people to have access to this science and social right. science. And I like that right. you and Casilda and I and some other writers are doing it. And you're right. There is a certain amount of contempt that some people have about it. But a lot of people, including scientists, um, have expressed to both of us, you know, thanks for helping me get my work into the mainstream. Exactly. Look, they have a lot of pollution anxiety. Mm. They're afraid of... Um, crossing it over themselves right. or as you said sure. they're way too busy and there are good reasons um that they don't want to do it but right. they they can't stop us we need them and they need us and thank you thank you chris untrue go get it thank you free your mind and your ass will follow the kingdom of heaven is within free your mind your ass will follow the kingdom of heaven is within There you have it, Wednesday Martin, the great Wednesday Martin. Her book, Untrue, is out uh, just last week it released. So um, if you think you might want to read it, now's a good time to buy it. Try to boost her up onto the bestseller lists if possible. Um, yeah, and that's all I'm going to say. Hear that silence? That's me not trying to sell you anything. Here's to you, Justin and Bennett. Take care. Talk to you soon. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation. Wondering
to the ground. 